Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It was just after midnight on January the 1st, 2022, that Eric Adams was sworn in as the 110th mayor of New York City. I, Eric Adams, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear, that I will support the Constitution, that I will support the Constitution of the United States. During the campaign that propelled him into City Hall, Mr. Adams drove home his central message. The challenges New Yorkers face, crime and economic hardship, are ones he knows only too well. My story is your story. And I did not just want New Yorkers to hear my story. I wanted them to feel my story. I wanted them to know I am you. The life I live is the life many are living right now. We are the same. His childhood was spent on the verge of homelessness and fear of being forced onto the streets without warning. You may be living from one shelter to the next. And you may say to yourself that this is my destiny. But I want them to hear the story of my siblings up here carrying a garbage bag full of clothing to school every day because we thought we were going to come home and the marshals were going to throw us out. Now he's mayor, he needs to fix New York's housing crisis. But that is facing renewed pressure from a national problem. The buses keep coming to New York City and Washington, D.C. At first, hundreds, now thousands of migrants arriving in the Northeast after being sent by the governors of Texas and Arizona. The influx of more than 20,000 migrants is squeezing the city's homeless shelter system and intensifying the need for affordable housing. Mr. Adams has declared a state of emergency. Building a city to house New Yorkers and one that can cope with incomers is his biggest test. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how can New York solve its housing crisis? My guest is the city's mayor, Eric Adams. He was elected to office this time last year, having built an outer borough and multiracial coalition. Born in Brooklyn and raised in Queens, he was just 15 when he was beaten by police. He later joined the police department and rose to the rank of captain while protesting against racism and misconduct in the force. After 22 years, he hung up his uniform and entered politics, serving first as a state senator and then as Brooklyn's borough president. He inherited a city reeling from COVID, concerned about crime and with a towering housing problem. So what's his solution? Eric Adams, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much. It's great to be here and speak with you. Now, you've been mayor of New York for almost a year now. You said that one of your priorities was to re-energize the spirit of New York. What is that spirit to you and why do you think it needs something of a boost? On September 
11, 2001. I watched those buildings collapse as a lieutenant in the police department, and we acknowledged the loss of lives. But here's the day that I remember the most, September 12th. We got up, the flags went out, teachers taught, builders built, retailers sold goods, and we saw that we're not gonna allow terrorism to destroy our energy and spirit. And COVID, it wasn't terrorism, but it brought terror. And that same renewal of purpose and focus is what this city is looking for and clarity of direction. And that is what I'm going to present as the mayor of the city. And one very important way in which the spirit and values of the city are being put to the test are these. Since April, around 20,000 migrants have arrived in the city. Many have been sent from Republican-led states along the southern border. And the argument then from Republicans is that so-called sanctuary cities like New York often refuse to work with federal immigration authorities and that they should share the burden. What do you make of that argument? Well, we have. Uh, When you do an analysis of asylum seekers and migrants, uh, you will see long before this current crisis hit our city, uh, New York has been known to really help absorb those who want to come into this great country. What happened in this case, we saw a humanitarian crisis that was created by human hands. And whenever you deal with a crisis, you should have coordination. That is something that did not take place in some of the bordering states and municipalities. If we coordinate together as Americans, uh, we can handle these crises in a more humane way. And we're willing to do our share, not only our legal responsibility, but also our moral responsibility. The asylum seekers are fleeing hardship and violence. We need to treat them with the dignity that we're known for and not as political pawns. And that's what happened. You talk about legal and moral responsibility there, rightly, but you've also been on the end of a lot of criticism about plans to house migrants in a tent city or on cruise ships. The criticism there is that the long-term plan for what to do with migrants is lacking and that therefore this political football, if you will, just goes back and forth between the parties, between the states. I say in New York City, we have 8.8 million people, but we got 30 million opinions. (laughs) No matter what you do in this great city, uh, you're going to have yaysayers and naysayers. Here's the facts of the matter. We receive over 22,000 people that came to our city in a city that was already dealing with housing crises after the pandemic. Not one child slept on the street. Not one family slept on the street. We not only fulfilled our legal obligation of allowing people to have a roof over their heads, but we went beyond that and fulfilled our moral obligation. We incorporated children into our school system. We ensured that they had three meals a day, health care, eyeglasses, mental health services. So we fulfilled the obligation. The gap, it seems to me, is between this intense pressure on the system in cities like uh, New York at the moment and and what needs to happen down the line. I mean, you've called on federal government to allow migrants permission to work sooner, but that realistically takes time to implement long-term plans for housing take a very long time to to come through, whether that's in London or, or, or New York. So although you've got a national problem that's pressing at the moment, it's very much your problem in New York now. So what is your backup plan for doing more than you're telling me you've already been able to implement? Yes, it is my problem. And you know what? I want this problem. This is an opportunity to help those who are long-term New Yorkers 
and help those who are coming to this great country. Uh, there's a reason the uh, Statue of Liberty sits in our harbor. This is who we are as Americans. And so, number one, we have a system called FELPS vouchers. This allows people who are long-term New Yorkers that are living in shelters to transition into permanent housing. We've announced some major projects of building new housing uh, in the city to meet the demand. But we need our local electors to also embrace this and not embrace the concept of don't build in my backyard. Uh, This is a moment that all New Yorkers and all Americans must step up and show that we are um, who we say we are. I've noted that and I want to come back to uh, possible solutions and challenges on the housing problem in just a moment. But something I did want uh, to ask you about, Mr. Mayor, is the legal obligation of the city, which is to provide a bed to anyone who asks under something called the right to shelter. Now, you've suggested that that law be reviewed. What do you think needs changing? And is it still fit for purpose in the situation that you find yourself in in New York today? What we really were calling for lawmakers to look at is the hours in which you have to carry out the action. Trust me, when we had to write the shelter law years ago in our uh, city, no one thought you would be inundated with the volume that we were inundated with. But nonetheless, you've questioned whether the right to shelter, as it's currently enshrined in law, is serviceable at the moment. I suppose my question to you is, Why and what is it that you would like to see differently? Decades ago, when it was created, uh, this form of a crisis of asylum seekers coming to a city, that was never a part of the concept of right to shelter. And that is what we were talking about. There should be some form of leeway. There should be some form of understanding when you're dealing with a crisis. Do you think then that the federal authorities really should be doing more at the border? And how do you see that balance? Oh, I I think it's crucial. We need a bipartisan immigration policy in this country. And we called on uh, the White House to have a decompression strategy. Uh, They did so. We went from seeing anywhere from six to 10 buses a day uh, down to maybe one or two a week. It really allowed us to see this issue handled at the border. And that's where it should be handled. And we want to continue to see a bipartisan agreement on uh, immigration. It makes no sense that we allow people in the country and we tell them that they cannot work until six months. Although they may have the skills to fill jobs, the skills to contribute to the economy, That policy is a broken policy. We need a long-term and a proactive strategy uh, to deal with this issue. And that includes Congress passing legislation that would allow asylum seekers to legally work and provide an emergency financial relief for our city. The Migrant Influx presents an opportunity to make the wider housing crisis a priority. And you've written an article for The Economist's World Ahead publication, which will be out later in the month on your way of going about fixing it. Why is housing such a problem in New York, and I'm going to be quite kind of annoying, I guess. So if you're going to boil down your answer to a single thought, what is it? Number one, the cost of uh, the supplies, the raw material have almost tripled. And there's some of the policies and laws we have. Uh, We had a law here called 421A. It was an incentive for developers to build. This law uh, was not renewed. It had a major impact uh, on our housing. And then we have a system in the city. It's called members' deference. 
so a local council person can veto housing in their district. Uh, we see this often, and it's something that can get in the way of the housing that the city needs, and it's something that we have to often navigate. We have several projects that we're looking at now that's going to bring 1,100 units of housing. A substantial number of those units are going to be affordable and deeply affordable, but we're having a challenge with the local council person who is not willing to have the housing built there. You believe the fix is yimbyism which was a new one on me, but it's yes in my backyard as opposed to better known nimbyism, which is no in my backyard. So how do you turn New York's very loud, ingrained nimbyism into yimbyism? We must be clear to the public that housing is all of our obligation. Every New Yorker will say that they believe everyone should have a right to housing, but then they turn around in some voice and say, well, long as it's not on my block, long as it's not near my school, long as it's not near my park. Uh, we want those numerical minority that is opposed to housing to join the overwhelming majority of New Yorkers that understand this is a problem we all must save and everyone has a right to housing. That is a very difficult change to affect. And the numbers from the mayor's management report itself shows that in your first six months in office, the amount of new affordable housing units declined by just under 50% compared with the previous fiscal year. I mean, are you really saying I'm not able to do more faster because of this ingrained nimbyism? There are many rivers that get in the way of building housing, and we have to dam each river. Nimbyism is one of the rivers. But we have other things, uh, such as staffing. And then we have real racism around redlining. And we need to ensure that government is working without the bureaucracy that has historically got in the way of building housing. Let's move on to crime and policing. You campaigned to become mayor on the pledge that you'd keep the city safe. And murders are down by around 14% since last year. Uh, and crime is a lot lower than it was in its peak in the early 1990s. And yet many New Yorkers that I talk to say that they feel unsafe. And this perception does seem to have become a problem in and of itself. I'm a big believer that it takes a while before what you felt becomes what you feel. And we need a combination of bringing down those other, uh, what we call predatory crimes, to match the success we've had around shootings and homicides. When I ran for office, I was clear. I wanted to go after gun violence and I wanted to go after the murders. And I wanted to focus on what was happening in our subway system to deal with those six felonies we uh, are experiencing a day in our subway system. This is quite the list, Mr. Mayor. I am correct, if you don't mind. Um, it does bring me to, you mentioned the subway, and of course you were a former transit cop yourself. You and Governor Kathy Hochul have announced a plan to combat crime on the subway by increasing the number of police officers patrolling the system. So far, so good, but you've said that you'll do this by asking police to work more overtime shifts. And many critics, including the police union, have said this is unsustainable. Why do you think it's going to work? I did this before as a transit police officer. I was one of those officers that did two hours overtime every night. We're fighting against the feeling and we're fighting against the actual crimes. That uniform is a symbol of safety. And so we have to recapture the feeling that people are safe in our subway system. And this is sustainable because we're going to focus on it. But it's not a long-term solution, is it? Simply sort of sweating the assets and having police work more shifts. 
You do it when you have a feeling of uh, disorder. Uh, it is so important to have officers utilize overtime to deal with the feeling of disorder that people were experiencing. I heard New Yorkers, and New Yorkers stated that, Mayor, we would like to see more police officers. And that's an immediate fix to how New Yorkers are feeling as we increase our ridership. And there are many rivers, as I state, to feed the sea of violence. And we must have an upstream and downstream proactive and reactive response to policing and public safety. And that's what we're doing. I must quickly uh, ask you to touch on something else uh, which can fuel violence. And that is, of course, gun violence, gun ownership. Very briefly, has the Supreme Court's decision to strike down New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, which extended the right to bear arms outside the home, has that affected gun violence in your city? We have yet to see the full blow of that. Uh, One thing that's clear, we have an activist court that is clearly out of alignment uh, with what the American people were looking for. And so we're going to continue to use our laws here to make sure that these laws do not hurt people in our city. I've just come back from the US before this interview. And of course, the subject that is in the headlines, is on television screens day in, day out at the moment, has been that attack on the husband of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. A man's been charged with attempted homicide for that. It's one example of increasing political violence because it does appear that that attack was also, or perhaps primarily, aimed at her. And it was just chance that she was not in the House at the time. Is this subject as distressing as it is, one that you're concerned about deepening the rift between Republicans and Democrats and the way that they respond to this sort of urgent challenge? Extremism is hurting our country, and that extremism is on both sides of the aisle. Everyday Americans and New Yorkers are being held hostage by that. What happened in this case is really a reflection and an indictment of the dialogue has spiraled out of control But it is spiraling out of control, and it's less than a week until the midterms. The incumbent Democrat governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, is locked in battle with Lee Zeldin, her Republican challenger, and the polls appear to show that that race is narrowing. Why is the contest so close, and does it show Democrats losing their grip on what was such a solidly blue state? We cannot allow um, who we are as Democrats, if I'm speaking specifically as a Democrat, we cannot allow who we are to be hijacked by those who are on extreme end of our parties. Democrats believe in public safety. That's why we fought for the crime bill. That's why we fought to pass gun control measures. That's why we fought not to defund police, but give police the resources they need. It was the Republican Party that didn't vote for these things. Yes, but but Republicans are improving their margin among black voters, among Hispanic voters, working class voters, including in New York City. How much of a concern do you think that should be for Democrats? And do Democrats need to be a bit more self-critical about their record? The Democrats, they have a responsibility to have clarity of their message, the good message that they stand for, everything from health care to public safety to quality education. Don't allow the extreme end of the parties that run on bumper stickers like defund the police to hijack their entire message. That is what has happened. And I believe that Democrats must be very clear on what we stand for, and we stand for everyday blue-collar, working-class people in the city and this country, and they've lost that narrative by the loudest who are the far left of the party. You dubbed yourself once, I think, the new face of 
the Democratic Party. I remember that. Clearly, that's what you're aiming for in this sort of answer. But do you think, one, that can be replicated, and two, that that contest with the left of the party over ideas, defund the police became a bit of the talking point, but there's more. Are you honestly convinced that you're winning that argument to the extent that you can reconvince voters? It's not the left, because the left is doable. It's the far left. <laughs> you know, it's those that want to disband police departments, those that are completely anti-business, those that believe we should open all jails and let everyone out. Democrats can be bold and big while still getting stuff done every day. And perfect cannot be the enemy of progress. And so I want to be clear. Uh, I consider myself to be a practical progressive and I have left a lean in ideas. But I know that we need to deliver for the American people. And that's the message that the Democratic Party must get out and not the message that the far left has hijacked. One final question for you, Mr. Adams. You're going to have to pick a favorite here. New York is so well known for the songs, the books and the films that it inspires. What do you reckon is your city's best cultural asset? I think our theater is a magnet that pulls us all into its gravitational pull. Uh, That's the symbol of New York, a grinding attitude to get the job done. And I'm just a symbol of the grinding attitude of New Yorkers. Thank you so much indeed, Eric Adams. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Take care. And do let us know what you think. If you were mayor for a day in your city, what would your first priority be? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at The Economist. As Americans head to the polls, don't miss our Checks and Balance podcast. This week, the team analyzes what's at stake in these crucial midterm elections. You'll find the show wherever you get your podcasts. And you can read more of our coverage on the battle to control Congress over on our website, The best way to enjoy it all is to become a subscriber. And we've got a special offer just for our podcast listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. The producers are Alicia Burrell and Sarah Larniuk. The bookings producer is Melanie Starling-Condon. And the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. (laughs) 